Grab your Bibles, if you will. Open them to um, Genesis chapter 1. That won't be very hard to find, I don't think. Genesis 1. Let me read to you, beginning at verse 26. You follow in your copies as I read that which we know to be the infallible, the inerrant, the very mind of God as black words on a white page. This is God's truth. You listen as I read some of it. Genesis 1 at verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, that endures forever. You know, folks, uh, after hearing what I have to say this morning, <laughs> this morning some of you... Some of you may conclude that it's time for you to um, start looking for a new church. I, I hope not. That's not my intention. Um, I certainly don't want you to do that. And, and I want you to know that I, I don't have some, some big announcement to make this morning or um, I'm not going to uh, unveil this new, strange, spooky doctrine for you. What I have for you is, is a challenge. A big challenge. It's a challenge of being. It's a challenge of doing. And what I'm thinking is that some of you will hear this and you'll say, I'm not really up for that. And I understand. But uh, hear me out. I, uh, I hope what you hear will ignite your soul. Now, one more thing. Um, you're going to need to come back next week. Because this is really, really only half of what I want to say to you. I said this is the challenge of being and doing. The, um, this morning we're going to talk about being Next week, we're going to talk about doing. And next week is when it really gets, um, shall we say, challenging. Uh, I know that, that many of you uh, have certain expectations of me when I get back from 14 days on the mission field. You're thinking, well, we're going to talk about the Great Commission. Uh, and we are. We are going to talk about the Great Commission. But wait a minute, Dr. Young. Um, you know, uh, as far as I know, the, uh, the Great Commission is in Matthew chapter 28. And I know Matthew chapter 28. 
And from what I can tell, uh, you weren't reading from Matthew. You read something from Genesis 1, didn't you? Well, you're right on both counts. The Great Commission is found in Matthew 28, and I did read from Genesis chapter 1. What I want to suggest to you, ladies and gentlemen, is that the Old Testament's version of the Great Commission is found in Genesis chapter 1. It's called the cultural mandate. What I read you, verses 26, 27, and 28, is called the cultural mandate, primarily centered on verse 28. But it's called the cultural mandate, and in, and in many ways, ladies and gentlemen, it is, it is bigger, much bigger than Matthew 28. Because Genesis 1 calls for dominion, dominion, dominion over the whole earth. God's original, his first command, his first command to his creature Adam and this is, this is prior to the fall. This is before sin entered. His first command to Adam was to subdue the whole earth. Now, after Genesis 3, the entrance of sin, the, the, um, the, the command became far more difficult, but it didn't change. It was the same command made difficult by sin, yes. But it was the same command. Cultural dominion. And one of the ways that, that you can do that is via evangelism. Winning people to Jesus Christ. Yes. But evangelism was never intended to be the only way that dominion was achieved. And that's what I want to talk to you about. Gang, um, perhaps one of the most overlooked contributions of the Protestant Reformation, you know what I'm talking about back in Martin Luther and Zwingli, Calvin, Melanchthon, uh, 16th century? Probably one of the greatest contributions made by the Protestant Reformation, and, and it really has been a, um, a real contribution to the modern world, really, was the Reformation's vigorous pursuit of the recovery of calling. I'm not talking about regeneration or effectual calling. I'm simply talking about vocational calling. The Reformers... Uh, those men who led the Reformation, they argued that, that all of secular life should be made into a vocation unto God. It, our vocation was to be viewed as a way of bringing about dominion over the entire created order, over everything, over Banking and finance, over um, the arts, over uh, education and medicine, over construction, over, over science and business. The office was to be turned into a place of sanctuary, of, of, of cathedral, of temple. It was supposed to be a place of worship. As, as, as the people of God brought about Dominion. 
over the entire created order. All of it. All of it was to feel the thumbprint of the God who had made it. Gang, um, the, the, um, the word vocation comes from the Latin word vocatio, which uh, is translated variously. It's translated uh, summons or invitation or even by our English word calling. But folks, the heart of our calling is not to something, but to someone. Whatever our occupation, it was to be viewed, it was to be elevated to an expression of worship. None of us. None of us lived are, are to live uncalled lives. But there's a problem. Our, our problem is that we, we, we tend to compartmentalize life with our, with our spiritual life over here and, and our, our jobs over here. Gang, listen to me. We don't have a spiritual life. We have a life that was intended to be lived spiritually. Our careers are to be approached in the light of God's calling and passionately pursued as an expression of our worship. Beyond that, whatever we find ourselves doing is supposed to be infused with the greatest call of all, and that is faithfulness. Faithfulness in that calling. Folks, did I tell you about the lady who, who cross-stitched a little plaque that she put right above her kitchen sink? And she wrote on that plaque in cross-stitched letters, she wrote, Divine services held here three times daily. Gang, that's, that's, that's what I'm talking about. That, and, and without that deep, profound sense of vocation, what we end up doing is simply racing through schedules and building portfolios and, and climbing corporate ladders and, and optimizing our retirement plans for little more than economic gain. And I've got some good news for you, ladies and gentlemen. God would save you from that. God has called us to dive into this ocean of dominion. And yet we so often have spent our lives wading around in the shallows of economic gain. You know, I, I think we began to get off track about the time that we were choosing a college major. Remember those days? Um, let, let's just say that we were opportunistically pragmatic. By that I mean this. We chose a major that we felt perhaps was the easiest and the one that would allow us to get the best job, i.e., the most money. 
Um, now, guys, on a personal note, this is exactly how I did it. Exactly. I took the college catalog at the University of Tennessee, and I thumbed through the majors that were available to me, and I tried to find the one that had the least accounting and the most amount of courses with the name personnel in the title. And I ended up with a major known as personnel management. That's how I chose my major. Thumbing through that catalog, trying to figure out I could get through the easiest and have awaiting me job offers with big fat salaries attached. Now, gang, I, I wasn't a Christian in college. But tell me, you who were, isn't, isn't that pretty much typical for Christians and non-Christians? Oh, there were, there were some of us, some of you, who went to college knowing what, what you wanted to be. But um, rarely, rarely if ever did any of us, Christian or non-Christian, consider the cultural mandate in our decision-making process. Dorothy Sayers, who was a sidekick of C.S. Lewis's, she said this, and I'm quoting. Doctors practice medicine not primarily to relieve suffering, but to make a living. Lawyers accept briefs not because they have passion for justice, but because the law is a profession that enables them to live. More often than not, we have reduced being a Christian doctor or a Christian lawyer to what is done outside of the office in some form of official ministry setting. The fallacy of this is that we view work not as the expression of man's creative energy in the service of society, but only something he does in order to obtain money and leisure. Gang, she's simply pointing to the same thing I'm trying to describe, and that is the, the dichotomy that exists between someone's so-called secular life and their spiritual life. Let me say it again. We don't have a spiritual life. We have a life that was intended to be lived spiritually. And thus, the challenge. We're going to change that. Or at least try hard. Thomas Merton, who was, uh, is a Roman Catholic mystic, Thomas, Thomas Merton said, A tree gives glory to God by being a tree. Um, a tree brings glory to God by being what God intended it to be. Okay, then, what, what, what did God intend us to be? Well, the, the, the old reformational word is the word vicegerent. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good word, isn't it? 
uh, I mean, if, if nothing else, you learned a new word today in church. Vicegerent. Say it with me. Vicegerent. It's a, it's a wonderful word. And let me, let me, what is it? Let me read you just a dictionary definition of what a vicegerent is. Listen to this. Um, a vicegerent is an officer appointed by a sovereign as his deputy, exercising delegated powers. Can I read that again? An, a, a vice gerent is a deputy, excuse me, he's appointed by a, an officer, appointed by a sovereign, as his deputy, exercising delegated powers. That's who we are. We are officers appointed by a sovereign as his deputy, exercising delegated powers. Gang, that's what Genesis 1 entrusted to us. God created the heavens and the earth. Then he creates the crown of his creation in his own image and calls him Adam. And then he turns to us and he says, have dominion as my vice gerent. Gang, I'm, I'm aging myself, but uh, about 30 years ago, there was a movie, a great movie. And many of you saw it. It was um, called Chariots of Fire. Uh, I guess every preacher's used this story before, but I'm going to use it now. It's a, it's a, it's of course a, a cinematic biography of of Eric Little, who was an, an Olympic runner from Scotland, and I think he won a gold medal in the th- 1936 Olympics, something like that. But anyway, there's a scene in the movie where uh, he and his sister Jenny are walking through the Highlands of Scotland, and Jenny's trying to talk him out of his running, and Eric Little who ended up as a missionary to China and died of cancer in China as a missionary, Eric Little turns to his sister and he says, Jenny, God made me fast. I don't do that very well, do I? God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Jenny, God made me fast. And when I run... I feel his pleasure. Gang, God made all of us uniquely in a certain way. And when we run according to that design of his that is impressed and imprinted in us, we feel pleasure. His pleasure. And, and, and we experience a sense of pleasure of our own. Folks, the boredom that you feel now in your life, which is evidenced in, in our search for novelty and our, our love of gadgetry. You know, gang, this is just an opinion of mine, but I'm convinced that the reason that the divorce rate is so high in this country is not because people are adulterers. They're just downright bored. They want something new and fresh and zingy and zesty and with pizzazz. They're bored. They're bored with their jobs. They're bored with their families. They're bored with their life. And you listen to me. I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why you're bored. It has to do with our departure from design. Because when I function 
according to that design. I feel his pleasure. Gang, this is the most wonderful quote I've found in a long time. It's from Frederick Beekner. Vocation is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. Vocation is the place where my deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. Okay, then, Jimmy, then how has God made me? Well, I can help you out a little bit of that, uh, with a little bit of that. At least the text can. It does tell you that you're made in God's image. That at least we know. But in terms of the details, the, 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 the specifics of how God has made you, you only you are going to be able to answer that between you and the Lord. But however he's made you, and wherever he has placed you, I can tell you what's supposed to be going on. With all of those skills and all of those abilities and all of those opportunities that, you, that make you uniquely you, all of that is supposed to be funneled with one aim in mind. I'm God's deputy. I'm asserting his sovereign ownership over all of life. Ladies and gentlemen, there is not one square inch of this entire planet where God is not Lord. There's not a single case in all of the Bible where someone wants to go on some kind of journey so that he can discover uh, who he is, so that he can optimize him, find himself. Who am I? Oh, yes, there are, there are instances where people are invited to do certain things like Jeremiah, or there's people who were selected to do certain things like David. There were people who were, who were um, challenged to do certain things like uh, uh, Esther and Deborah. But not once does anybody ever go on some kind of search for their innate identity so that they can try to figure out who they are, so that they can develop some kind of strategy so that I can optimize my, my fullness and wholeness and psychological health. No, 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 no. They simply live their life in faithfulness. And responded to what God brought their way. The Bible had already told them enough about their identity and their responsibility. Which is in Genesis 1. And theirs, their calling was to simply, faithfully execute that. Gang, my fundamental calling is not about what I do. It's about how I do it. God calls me to live large on the very stage on which I find myself. God has placed us in the very situation that we're in and infuses that with meaning and significance. As we live out faithfully as his deputy in the place we find ourselves. About five or six years ago, 
our missions conference speaker was a guy by the name of Paul Koistra. And Paul Koistra uh, mentioned a book when he was here that I went out and bought and read. And um, the title of the book was Borden of Yale 09, 1909. Um, it, was a, it was a biography of William Borden, who was, a, of course, a, as I said, a student at Yale. Um, he uh, then became a missionary candidate to uh, China. He was the heir to the Borden-Dairy estate, and thus he was, um, he was a millionaire, uh, back when a millionaire used to be something. He was a millionaire before he ever graduated from high school. And as a graduation present, his family gave him a trip around the world. And so he traveled all around the world into um, uh, the Mideast and in uh, Africa and, and Europe. And, and uh, midway in his, in his journey, he, he wrote back to his family and told them that he was going to become a missionary when he got back. He was going to go to the mission field. And so after making that decision to be a missionary, he wrote two words in the back of his Bible. The two words he wrote in the back of his Bible were, no reserves. He goes on to Yale. Uh, he enters as a freshman. And as, when he does, he starts a, a, a campus-wide movement that after, before his first semester was up, 150 of the fellow freshmen in his class were meeting weekly in a Bible study and prayer. Before he graduated, 1,000 of the 1,300 students at Yale were involved in these small group Bible studies that William Borden had started. Beyond the campus, he, he founded the Yale Hope Mission to reach out to those who were living homelessly on the streets of New Haven, Connecticut. Um, after he graduated, or uh, upon his graduation, he was offered numerous well-paying jobs, all of which he turned down. And then he wrote, he added two words to the two words that were already found in the back of his Bible. The first two words he wrote, as you recall, were no reserves. He added to that... No retreats, no reserves, no retreats. He went on to seminary at Princeton, graduated from seminary, was ordained, and through China Inland Mission, headed to the Muslims of China. He stopped in Egypt to learn Arabic so that he could minister to Muslims. And while in China, he contracted cerebrospinal meningitis. And within a month, he was dead. He was 26 years old. But before he died, knowing that the steps of his life would take him no further, he added another couplet to the two already found in the back of his Bible. He wrote, first, no reserves. He wrote, second, no retreats. And he added, right before he died, no regrets. No reserves. No retreats, no regrets. And I wonder how many of us as members of Grace Evangelical Church will go to our graves being able to say none of that. Folks, this is not about us. It's not about our personal fulfillment, our personal happiness. It's about personal faithfulness. You know, I think that we've even made too much around here at Gracie Van of, of finding your spiritual gifts. Because it suggests perhaps that I don't, 
until I find my spiritual gifts, I can sit on my haunches. If we gave you that impression, God forgive us. One of these days, I hope to go back. Well, I'm not really a fan of London. I've never been to London. Well, how can I not be a fan? But there's a village outside of London. Uh, it's pronounced Hayworth. It was the whole of the home of the Brontes family. The Brontes family. You know, all those Brontes, those literary giants. There was um, uh, Anne, Charlotte, and Emily. They all wrote uh, great English classics. Their father was a pastor. His name was Patrick. He was brilliant himself and didn't print himself. Um, but his three daughters, uh, Anne wrote The Tenet of Wildfell Hall. Charlotte wrote Jane Eyre. And Emily wrote Wuthering Heights. You know, to have one published writer in the family is rare. To have two is almost unheard of. To have four. <laughs> Particularly when they wrote such great English classics. But there was another member of that family that you don't know much about. It was the brother. They had a brother and his name was Branwell. And it was said that Branwell was more intelligent and more gifted and more brilliant than any of them. He was an artist. He was, um, he was a speaker. He was a writer. And um, he drew or uh, a portrait of his three sisters and himself, which presently hangs in, in a uh, gallery in London uh, of the three pictures and himself. However, after he completed it, Branwell went back and smudged over the portion of himself. And so the, the painting that's hanging in the gallery in London today is a picture of the three girls, two on one side, one on the other, and a gap right in the middle where he stood. He, in essence, erased himself. He, he voided himself. And then he promptly went out and drank himself to death. Gang, I, I'm not saying that we're a bunch of alcoholics. But I am saying we are on the verge of wasting life. But Jimmy, can I, can I make a mid-course correction? Sure you can. But those corrections must be made in light of the cultural mandate. If there's anything that an understanding of the cultural mandate will do or should do or should provide, it is a vision for all of life. Guys, um, one of the things that I do when I'm away is that I read. Um, when we get to a place where Susie can shop, she does, and I sit in a Burger King and read. Um, and I love it. I love it that she can do that, and I love it that I can do this and uh, keep worrying about whether they're going to come and ask me, finally ask me to leave, you know. But um, one of the books that I read was a novel by Ernest Gaines entitled uh, A Lesson Before Dying. The novel is set in um, a small town in, uh, outside of Baton Rouge in Cajun, Louisiana, in the 40s, 1946, I believe. And, um, uh, it's about a young black man by the name of Jefferson who reluctantly got involved in a, in a robbery of a liquor store. And in the midst of the robbery, I mean, he didn't even know he was going to it. He got picked up and, um, by two friends, and they headed to the liquor store to rob it. And uh, in the midst of the robbery, 
Um, the two friends that picked him up were killed, and the, the, the liquor store owner is killed. And Jefferson is captured. He's accused of um, uh, murder, and, and um, you know, he really was an innocent bystander and all this, but he was there, and he was a black man in, the, in, in Louisiana in the 40s. And so he went to trial, and the strategy of the defense attorney in defending Jefferson was basically this. He was trying to elicit sympathy from the, from the jurors for this poor, pitiful heap of nothingness. And, and one of the big lines in the novel is the defense attorney looks at the jurors and he says this. The, the defense attorney says to the jurors, he says, Why, I'd rather electrocute a hog than electrocute that. I'd rather electrocute a hog. And so the real protagonist of the book is a guy by the name of Grant Wiggins. He's a black man who is college educated, and he comes back to teach at the plantation school. And his aunt approaches him, approaches Grant Wiggins, and says, I want you to do this. I want you to go to see Jefferson. And I want you to make him a man before he dies. I don't want him to die in the electric chair thinking he's a hog. I want you to talk to him, and maybe at least he can die with a sense of dignity. Let him know that he's more than a hog. That's the book. My brother and sister in Christ, we're more than hogs. But you knew that, didn't you? What you might not have known is that we are vicegerents. And now, before it's too late, let's go live like that. Father, I, I pray that you would raise up from this church people who, are, who refuse to give their life over to the shallows of economic gain. And they would invest themselves in something so big, so everlasting, so glorious, that they will sense and taste meaning like they have never tasted it before. Father, the goal is not for us to taste meaning. The goal is faithfulness so that you can be glorified. Unless your Holy Spirit authors that, Father, my sermons won't do it. So would you do that for your glory and for Jesus' sake? In whose name we pray.